One of the most common questions I've been asked in the last several weeks is, how are you? But not the run of the mill, how are you? Genuinely, people have asked me, Aaron, how are you? Now, normally, I, I, I'm not at a loss for words, but I'm still not really sure how to answer that question. It's difficult to put into words the emotions, the thoughts, the concerns, the encouragement, the despair, all of that. It's difficult to put that into words and to explain to someone how you're doing during such unusual and difficult times. It's very difficult. But in spite of all of the challenges that we've had, five of the last 11 months locked down, unable to meet as a church, in spite of all the atrocities we see taking place in our country, we still have hope. And we have hope and we can have peace and we can take heart during tribulation, whether it be minor or major. You know why? Because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. By focusing on the good news that Christ has actually already, he's already overcome the world. We know how this all ends. And we serve the winner. We're on the winning team. In the meanwhile, we might get knocked around, slapped around, fined, tossed in jail, ridiculed, be subjects of public slander, or whatever it might be. But we're on the winning team. And the masses that are opposed to God are on the losing team. This brings us hope. An analogy that might help you before we enter into the text. Suppose, for example, that you were called upon to go to war, to fight for a just cause. And you knew that at some point in the battle, you were going to get shot or stabbed. And that everyone else in your platoon or battalion would experience the same thing. But you also knew with 100% certainty that every one of you would survive and you would ultimately win the battle. Would it be worth it? Of course it would be. And that's an apt analogy of the spiritual life that we live. We will experience trial and tribulation. It's guaranteed. But all of us will survive that love and know the Lord, and we will win. And this is why we fight on. So let's warm our hearts tonight by looking at Jesus' words in John chapter 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples as he often does in figures of speech. Some people might say, why would you bother doing that, Jesus? Why not just get to the point? Well, Jesus likes to keep people in suspense, get them thinking, get them mulling things over. He wants to draw them in. People can sometimes not pay too close of attention. So Jesus does all of that. He employs a lot of different rhetorical strategies and so forth to communicate a message. And here he's communicating to them in figures of speech. So enter in at John 16, verse 17, and let's read this. The Bible says, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? So what is he saying? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. Of course, Jesus knows everything. And so he said to them, 
Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? We'll just pause there. Let's just kind of unpack this. So Jesus is using time words. In a little while, you won't see me. In a little while, this will happen. In a little while, that will happen. And of course, this created in the minds of his listeners suspense. Now that suspense in a mature person will create faith. But suspense in an immature person often creates doubt and second guessing. See, all of us, like the early disciples, would like to know what precisely God has in mind, when he's going to come through, how he's going to come through, how he will redeem and rescue us, and what the ultimate outcome will be. Can we all agree to that? That's what I would like. I would like to know when this is all going to go away. I would like to know when I and others like yourselves are going to be vindicated from accusations. I would like to know what God has in store for his church, right down to the detail. That would be a wonderful thing to know. And Jesus' early disciples are mulling over this. They're essentially asking, how long is this going to last, Lord? Could you be a little more specific with this whole a little while thing? They want more than Jesus had yet offered. And in his response, which is interesting, what does Jesus do? He doesn't come and just say, hey, it's all going to be great and fine. Don't worry about it. You've, you've suffered as much as you'll ever suffer. So just, just relax, chill out. Instead, Jesus announces further tribulation. Did you notice that? Further tribulation, but he doesn't leave them hanging. He also infuses his announcement with much hope. In verse 20, he goes on to say, truly, truly. In the old days when we were growing up in the King James Bible, it was verily, verily. Remember that? It's intended to be words of emphasis. It's, it's a word, these are words of certainty stacked upon one another. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, if that's all we had, and that was the end of the story, that'd be kind of a bit of a bummer, right? We'd have to leave her on a low point. Thank you, Lord. We're going to weep and suffer and the world's going to win. Great. But that's not where Jesus ends. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, so the very negative emotion that we want to avoid, will turn into joy. So now he gives us an analogy. Guys, don't pretend you really understand this but the women will understand it. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. If you've never been in the delivery room, and I've had the privilege of being in it five times, it's very true. There's a whole lot of yelling and little tip to those of you that might not yet be fathers. I tried this the first time. It didn't go over very well. Your wife's really not interested in your jokes when she's in the middle of trying to deliver. I thought that would lighten the mood. It didn't help. 
There's pain, you feel bad for your wife, you're like, what in the world is happening? I hope this is all going to turn out. And then when the baby is placed on her chest, you can see her face brighten up. And what mother in the room would dare look at her child and say, you weren't worth the pain? Well, maybe some would. Hopefully not. There's pain, but that pain leads to great joy. So Jesus uses this analogy to help us to understand that there is value in the outcome of suffering. There's value found in the outcome of suffering. And by the way, Jesus is not just foreshadowing our own suffering, but he's foreshadowing the outcome of his own suffering on Calvary. And we all know there's value in the outcome of Christ's suffering. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Anybody here have some sorrow that they've been struggling with? A little bit of despair, a little bit of doubt, some angst, some question marks. Here are Jesus' words to us. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy may be full. In verse 22, Jesus is speaking about his pending resurrection. I'll see you again. He's predicting, kind of tipping them off. Something's going to happen. They didn't know the full story, but we know it now because we have a complete canon of scripture. That Jesus was going to die a cruel death and be buried in a borrowed tomb. But he says, don't worry, I will see you again. In advance of that event, Jesus promises them that he will See them again. In verse 23, he has his ascension in view. You will pray to the Father for your needs in Jesus' name. Something new is going to happen. Jesus would establish a new paradigm, a new covenant, a new reality for his people. And once he had completed what he intended to complete on the cross and was resurrected and ascended to the Father... We would now have access to the Father. We could pray to the Father. Don't have to go through a priest. We could pray to the Father in Jesus' name because it's through Jesus we have access to the Father. And in verse 24, where he says, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Well, of course, they'd asked him for tangible things and you know, asked him for advice and asked him which way they were going to go and what the itinerary was for a given day, but he's not talking about that minor stuff. He's basically teaching them that in this new covenant, this new order, which he would establish, that people would pray to the father in Jesus name. And because Jesus would have conquered death by then, they would have full access to the father's blessings. They would have full access to the Father's blessing. So he summarizes all of this for them, just in case I've mispreached it. 
He summarizes all of this for them and for us in verses 25 and following, where he interprets what he's already said, which is super awesome when you're reading the Bible and you might be somewhat confused. He interprets it for you. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. There's automatic access to the Father when one believes in and loves the Son. I came from the Father and, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So we understand there Jesus is clearly referring to his death, burial, and resurrection, and reminding the people of God of all the benefits that are available to us because of the work of Jesus Christ. Many people take Jesus and they would just reduce him down to like a genie in a bottle. We rub the bottle, I just got some stuff I want to ask you to take today Jesus fix my problems or they just reduce Jesus down to a moral figure. Jesus is far more than that. Jesus is the one who gives us through his death, burial and resurrection access to the eternal father and all of the redemptive benefits that we have as covenant citizens, as citizens of this new order. So what can we learn from all of this? about the work of Christ. How does it bless us and benefit us as we experience a time of trial and tribulation? Several things should come to mind. How about this one? We have secured hope in a better sense of circumstances, in a better set of circumstances. We live, contrary to the people that were originally listening to this, on the other side of the cross. We are full-fledged, bona fide, new covenant citizens. We don't have to wait for Jesus to do anything. We're on the other side of the cross looking back and just reaping the benefits, benefits, more benefits of Jesus' redemptive work for us. We're citizens of a new covenant secured in Christ's blood. Sure of eternal life if we know him. Absolutely convinced that we are serving Christus Victor the victorious Christ. The world looks at him as a loser. We know he's the winner. We serve the risen Christ. We now have secured access to the Father. How's that? Now, we might not fully appreciate this. I think it was Adam prayed earlier, forgive us for not fully appreciating this. If you just kind of have it, you may not appreciate it. Then when it's taken away, you're like, okay, this is not good. And in the same way, because for all of our believing lives, we've been able to pray to God. We just pray to God. I can pray to God anytime I want. We may not fully understand how unusual this is compared to the majority of human history. For far more millennia than is on this side of the cross, people had to go through an intermediary to be heard by the Father. Through Moses, through the patriarch of the family, through the high priest, we have full access to the Father. Think about that. 
Full access to the Father. We don't have to beat on some drums to try to get his attention. Wave candle smoke around, hoping that he'll show up. Jump up and down, calling upon him to remember us. Throw blood on each other, as other religions do. We have access to the Father. What an incredible gift this is to the people of God. Let's take full advantage of it. Let's pray. Let's ask. Let's knock. And we will receive abundantly. Third, God guarantees to answer our prayers in the now. Now, of course, he doesn't guarantee to answer ridiculous prayers. Lord, make me a millionaire overnight. But he does agree to answer prayers that are in accordance with his moral and sovereign will. So we can ask in faith and believe that God will provide for his people. God's not a cosmic killjoy. He wants to mature us, so sometimes he allows us to suffer. But he's not the kind of God that's like, hey, here's a gift. You go to reach for it, he pulls it back. Go to reach for it again, he pulls it back. He wants to bless his children abundantly. And he points us finally to an eternal hope of sure victory. And by faith, we choose to receive and accept these things. Hey, by the way, a little sidebar probably needs to be mentioned often because we've probably all on some level been mistaught this. Faith is not some wishy-washy, hocus-pocus, sentimental drivel whereby we wish God would do something, but we're really not sure if he will. That's not faith. Faith is an obedient response to a God who has guaranteed something. Faith is a certainty word, not a wishy-washy, airy-fairy. I wonder if he's going to come through, chewing on my fingernails kind of word. There's a certainty to it. Read Hebrews 11. By faith they did this, did that, did this, did that, did this, did that. God always comes through in his own timing. So we receive these things by faith, which is a certainty kind of word. And having communicated that, this is the response of his early disciples. Look at verse 29. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking to us plainly and not using figurative speech. (laughs) Thank you. We get it now. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, I would say that's a check mark. But I love how Jesus tends to want to stretch us a little bit further, even when we kind of get it. And that's revealed in his response, because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, way to go. You got it. Okay, chocolate bars for everybody at the end of the service. Jesus says to them, he answered them, do you, notice the time word, now believe? Okay, so let me ask you this. All the stuff that Jesus is talking about from the vantage point of his original listeners, when was this going to happen? Had it already happened? Was it happening or would it happen in the future? You tell me. I know we're used to sitting in the car in the parking lot, but we're not in cars right now. 
Is Jesus talking about something that has happened? I already died. I am dying. Or I will die. Will. It's yet future, right? So Jesus is telling them, look, all of this access and faith that I want you to have is based upon future events from the perspective of those original listeners. And Jesus fascinatingly asks them, yeah, but do you believe now? Now let's just unpack this for a minute. We're on the other side of that. Okay, so this future thing that they were waiting for, we are now on the other side of it. So we can look back. We have a redemptive historical advantage. We can look back and say, well, they should have got it. Because for 2,000 years, we, we know it already happened. We know that Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, ascended to the Father. So we could say, well, that's easy for us then to have faith, right? It's easier for us to have faith in what Jesus did than it would be for them to have faith in what Jesus was yet to do. So Jesus says, do you believe now or do you now believe? So here's the point. Jesus told them in the present about what would happen in the future, but challenges them to believe in the now. Now, I think you know where I'm going with this. On the other side of the cross, which is where we are, we also have promises that are yet future from our perspective. And it's not sufficient for us just to look back and say, oh, I, I have faith in what Jesus had already, has already done. That's easy faith. But we are also called in the now to have faith in what Jesus will yet do in the future from our vantage point. So we look back and we grab hold of what Christ has done and we own it. We draw it near and we say, we're going to have faith in that. But like those early disciples, we have to look forward to the fullness of our salvation, which is yet to be revealed. We've not yet been glorified, fully sanctified, seen Jesus face to face, gotten through the lockdowns, gotten through the trial and tribulations, and ah, finally arrived in heaven. We're still waiting. But it's not enough for us just to look back and say, oh, I have faith in what Jesus has done. God is also calling his people, every generation, to have faith in the now for what is not yet. And this is the essence of true, mature faith. Jesus says in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. Maybe he was foreshadowing the lockdown. The time is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. What's Jesus predicting here? Do you remember what happened when all this sort of came down? Peter cut and run, Judas betrayed him, the other guys jetted. And Jesus was left alone. Many of them came back to the foot of the cross. Peter, of course, was restored later through this dramatic encounter with Christ. Judas, demonstrating that he was not a regenerate person, was not a real apostle, ran to the religious establishment for forgiveness, didn't find it, and went out and took his own life. Which, sad as it might be, was at least an honest response to the reality of his hopeless condition. 
Now, if you've read through the New Testament, you'll know that from there forward, even after everything was made right with Jesus and his early disciples, that early Christians met in homes. And many people like to look back at those early days with sort of this whimsical attitude. Wow, wouldn't it be nice to just all gather in house churches? I mean, that's how the early church did it. House churches. Why do we have buildings? Why do we have large structures? Why do we have cathedrals? Why do we meet in halls? I mean, the New Testament example is house churches. Clearly, that's how they met. Well, as much as God, of course, can work mightily and has in house churches throughout history. I've been to China on two occasions and taught in house churches, in the underground church, and God is working there. But no Chinese believer is going to say, we love this. House churches, hooray. We love sneaking around on Sunday morning into apartments and office buildings or under the cover of darkness. This is wonderful. No, those churches, are a lot of them are filled with heresy because there's not a lot of accountability. There's a lot of depression and despair. There's not a lot of male leadership in some of those churches. God is moving and God works among house churches, but let's just be reminded, the reason why they met in house churches is because they couldn't meet anywhere else. The earliest Christians met in the synagogue. Paul preached in the synagogue, but the church was driven underground. And so they met in houses, generally rich people's houses. You could fit more people in them. And sometimes they were driven into the catacombs for their worship services and burial services. This isn't meant to be some awesome paradigm for the church. It's describing, it's not prescribing the way church life should be. As soon as the early Christians come the third century or so had the opportunity, they quickly built public buildings. Why? Because they understood that the call of Christ is to be a public witness in the world. That's the ideal. To be a public witness, to plant a flag to circle an address on the map, say we will be a public witness for Christ, not to deny that the church is ultimately an organism, but the church is also an institute. And if you've been taught otherwise, you've been taught falsely. The church is an institute. The church is a visual expression of the work of Christ on earth. The church is actually Christ's embassy. This is why we react when some other king claims to have authority over the church. We say, hey, we're not adverse to having dialogue and being reasonable citizens, but you're not our king. You don't have authority over us. We're Christ's embassy. When Canadians plant embassies in other countries, they're not subject to taxation. They're not subject to the laws of those lands. Why? Because they understand that an embassy is a group of people representing a certain nation on sovereign soil. The reason why they're not taxed by the countries they're in is because taxation is a claim to having authority over and rulership over. This is why the church of Jesus Christ historically has not been taxed. It's not because the government is doing us a favor. It's not because we've been good little citizens and they feel sorry for us. It's because historically Western peoples understood that the church of Jesus Christ is Christ's embassy on earth. We are not subject to the rulership of the ruler. 
The king is not king of the church. Jesus Christ is king of the church. And yet our society has sadly forgotten that. Now I say all this because, yes, we need to have opportunities for house churches and we have those in the form of small groups and flock meetings. But we also, for as long as we possibly can, want to fight to be the church institute in our culture. Early Christians met in synagogues very early on, preached the gospel. And the church of Jesus Christ today, buildings like this are essentially modern synagogues where we call the public in to hear the word of God proclaimed, to teach the word of God, to gather with one another, to discipline one another to be more like Jesus Christ and be a witness in our world and then equip people to be sent out on mission for Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, in prophesying all of this difficulty that would come to his people, the trial, the tribulation, their own failures and their own regrets and their own stumbling still reminds us as he, as we come to the end of this passage that there is peace available to us in the midst of the trial and the tribulation and the turmoil. Again, back to the big idea, because our Lord wins. The second half of verse 32 says, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. You might have abandoned me or you might abandon me, but I'm not alone because the Father's with me. I have said these things to you that in me, in in other words, in my efforts, because clearly you're going to fail, you're going to abandon me, but I won't fail that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know why in God's prophetic plan, Peter failed Christ and the other disciples scurried away from Christ when he was arrested? This is all part of God's prophetic plan to illustrate that they actually didn't resist. They didn't actually stand up. Therefore, they don't get any of the credit for what happened to Jesus. See, one might think if if all the disciples were like pushing the guards aside, standing for Christ, and Christ was standing for the Father, that maybe Jesus gets 95% of the credit, but we got to give some credit to the disciples. I mean, they kind of stood up too, but they all ran off. So it further underscores that even in Jesus' close network, there is failure and there is sin. Christ alone is the one that endured the cross. Christ alone is the one who is an eternal relationship with the Father. And yet, graciously, instead of further punishing us for our abandonment of him, he offers us something beautiful, which is peace. He says that in me, not because of you, not because you showed up to church, not because you read your Bible every day, not because you're a little more moral than your neighbor, But because of Christ, it's because of Christ, it's in Christ, it's due to Christ that you have access to peace. Do you understand this, brother or sister? There was a lot of false messages out there. If you sit in a lotus position, you will find peace. If you drink herbal tea, meditate a lot, you'll have peace. There's actually herbal teas with, you know, packaging on them, like this, whatever, like mood-chilling tea. If you smoke some weed, 
You're going to have peace, man. Peace out. There is no true peace apart from Jesus. Jesus offers us peace because he accomplished something we were unable to accomplish. And he does say, regardless, in this world, you'll have tribulation. It's like, oh, really? Hopefully not much, but maybe a lot. But take heart. I have overcome the world. This is so simple, but so meaningful. And I think so relevant. This is not a call to do nothing. This is a call to restful and awakened trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for you. That's what this is. So it's really nice when lockdowns end or when people applaud us or when we accomplish something significant or when we master a spiritual discipline. That's great. We should strive for all of that. But ultimately, Christ gets the credit because it's in his work alone that we have access to present peace and eternal peace. This is the gospel. And if you've come into our house tonight and you don't have that peace, I want you to stand up, do a couple jumping jacks, and God will give it to you. No. I want you to leave a lot of money in your chair and God will give it to you. No. I want to throw some holy water on you and God will give it to you. No. You need to trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and rest in it and in him alone. And by God's grace, he will transform you and his accomplishments will be credited to your account. You know what false religion says? You got to work for it. Show up at the temple. Do the prayers five times a day. Kiss the idol. Fumble around with your little beads, whatever it might be. But the gospel is that Jesus accomplished it, and it's because of his finished work that you can get his credit applied to your account. And while you will face tribulation, so let's not tell people that when they become Christians, everything's going to be a rose, you know, uh, uh, like a bed of roses, a cakewalk, as we say. There will be tribulation, but we can still take heart in tribulation because Christ has overcome not only our problems, but he's overcome the world. That makes all the difference in the world. The world can declare us non-essential. They can fine us. They can threaten us with jail. They can throw our brothers in handcuffs. They can bully us. They can accuse us of being granny killers. They can tell us we're not loving. It's amazing how non-moral people suddenly draw upon moral language to try to justify the closure of God's house. They will do all this. They can threaten to take our insurance away. True story happened here. But we will prevail because Christ has prevailed. So take hope, church, and praise be to the God who controls all of history. 2,000 years ago, they could take hope. 2,000 years later, we can take hope. And if Christ does not return soon, I hope he will. But if he chooses not to return soon, future generations can take hope in Christ as well. So let's praise God for these wonderful blessings that he's provided to us through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ.